Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? So over this past weekend, I was listening to the podcast, uh, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, which I have no connection to. I just listened to it. And it included a section on AI that referenced something I don't think I had heard of before, which is really talking more about my oversight than anything else. Uh, Maybe I did hear about it, but then I forgot about it, you know, catastrophically. So the thing they talked about was catastrophic forgetting in artificial intelligence, specifically in machine learning systems built on artificial neural networks. Now, before we talk about catastrophic forgetting, which, as I mentioned, is related to neural networks and machine learning, we really need to do a quick reminder, not a quick reminder, we need to do a full reminder on how all this works. And that's going to require us to do a whole lot of remembering, not a catastrophic amount, but a lot. So the history of artificial intelligence as a discipline is one of intense and important debates in fields like computer science. Now, I have often talked about how AI can be seen as the convergence of several other disciplines into its own field. And there's more than one way to approach the challenge of artificial intelligence. And in the history of AI, we actually saw that play out and Some would argue the way it played out means that we're actually just now playing catch up. So different schools of thought pushed these different approaches forward as this should be the the prevailing methodology we use to develop artificial intelligence. This is important because the development of AI does not exist in a vacuum, right? It exists in our real world. Research requires funding. And when you've got different sides, arguing that their approach to artificial intelligence is superior and that the alternatives are not just inferior, but potentially limited to the point of being useless. Well, you've got a metaphorical wrestling match going on 
the winner takes home the big prize of getting funding for their research. And the loser has to scrabble for whatever they can find, and often they will see their work languish as a result. Uh, by the way, I uh, this is why I often bring stuff up in this podcast that is outside the realm of tech. Uh, I've received a lot of messages over the years from folks saying that I should leave out stuff like money or politics. Politics is the big one. But to me, that doesn't make sense because tech exists within our world, a world that is largely shaped by money and politics. I don't think we can separate the tech from all of that, because I believe that if you were to somehow magically remove those influences, if somehow money and politics never played a part in the development of technology, our tech would look very different from what it does today. Not necessarily better or worse, but different. I mean, Think about Thomas Edison. He was very much driven by financial success. Like his work in tech was really mostly about making lots of money. And without the making lots of money part, you don't really have his drive to really bring together the brightest minds of his generation and set them to work on creating incredible technology. So I think we have to take all these things into consideration. Anyway, that's a total rabbit trail, and I apologize. Let's get back to our story. It really begins around 1943, when a pair of researchers at the University of Chicago first proposed the concept of the basic unit of a neural network. Uh, those researchers were Warren McCullough and Walter Petz. And in fact, they demonstrated their idea by showing a simple electrical circuit, the very basis for what would become a neural network. So their proposal was a system that would use those simple circuits to mimic the neurons that we have in our noggins. So our brain consists of a bunch of these neurons. And you might wonder, how much is a bunch? Well, we're talking about, on average, around 100 billion neurons in the human brain. These neurons interconnect with each other. It's not just a one-to-one, -one, right? You've got these interconnections between all these different neurons uh, not with every neuron connected to every other neuron, but lots of interconnections. And if we're looking at just the connections, you would count more than 100 trillion of them in the typical human brain. And these connections in our brains make up neural circuits. Those circuits light up, and that represents us doing lots of different stuff, from experiencing the world around us, so perception, to Thinking about a past memory, you know, that typically is like recreating the same pathway over and over. And sometimes we don't recreate it exactly correctly. And our memory ends up not being a perfect representation of the thing that we actually experienced. This is why things like eyewitness testimony is not always very reliable because our memories aren't infallible. They can trick us uh, and we can have all those pathways light up when we learn a new skill. We start forming new pathways. And then as we practice this skill, we start to reinforce those pathways. So McCullough and Pitts propose that we create machines capable of doing essentially a similar thing that our brains do. So kind of a, a neuromimicry, uh, not exactly one to one the way our brains work, but inspired by the way our brains work. Now, we would be limited by what the technology of the day would be able to do, because there's no feasible way we could create a massive electrical system with 100 billion individual simple circuits with more than 100 trillion connections between them. That would be beyond our capability. It would be beyond our resources. We could, however, create systems that used interconnected circuits to process information and to teach such a system to do specific tasks. Now, in 1949, Donald Hebb wrote a book about biological neurons, and he titled this book The Organization of Behavior and suggested neural pathways get stronger with additional use. Kind of like, you know, if you exercise your muscles, you build strength over time. Well, so is the same with neural pathways. And if you don't use those muscles, well, then your muscles get weaker. Well, same with neural pathways. If you end up learning a skill, but then over a great amount of time, you no longer practice that skill, you're going to lose some of your ability. Maybe not all of it, but at least some of it. And you have to 
you know, like I, I think about uh, wrestlers who come back from from retirement, professional wrestlers. They call it ring rust. You got to knock off the ring rust and get back into step and kind of get back into your groove. And it takes a little time, typically. Uh, sometimes, you know, you can get back into the game faster than others, but you get the idea. And also, uh, Heb ended up proposing the concept of cells that fire together, wire together, meaning that neurons that fire at the same time end up strengthening faster than other neurons do. So when you get into that system, you can actually reinforce uh, those pathways. And for AI, this would be really important. And it wasn't very long after Donald Hebb had published this work that researchers in the field of AI tried to apply that concept, that philosophy, to computer science. By the mid-1950s, the burgeoning computer science lab and AI lab at MIT was building out neural networks based on Hebb's ideas. Meanwhile, another computer scientist named Frank Rosenblatt was looking at primitive neural systems, and he started with flies, like house flies. He wanted to explore systems that were involved when a fly would quickly move away after detecting a possible threat, like instantly, or at least a appearing to us to instantly react to something. So, for example, a fly swatter coming at it. Like you might be moving the fly swatter very quickly, and yet the fly is able to move super fast with no perceivable delay, right? We know that we have a delay from when we perceive something to when we can act on something. Like if you've ever been in a fender bender in a car accident, you know that, that, you know, there's a delay between when you see the issue, when you can hit the brake, and that can lead to accidents. Well, with flies, that delay seems to be super, super small. So Rosenblatt was really interested in exploring the neurological reasons for that. How can that happen? It has to be really simple, right? There has to be a simple and more or less direct pathway that exists to allow a fly to react to uh, detecting a potential threat like that. And if you could replicate that with electronics, you could have a very simple but potentially powerful artificial intelligence system. So he came up with this system that would be based off that very simple direct pathway that you would see in something like a fly, and he called it the perceptron. So he went back to the simple circuit design that was proposed by Pitts and McCullough, and he built out the Mark I perceptron or perceptron, I guess I should say. So let's talk about a perceptron, like not big P, but a little P, perceptron. This is probably what we would call a neural node in a modern neural network. So the purpose of the perceptron was to accept inputs and produce an output based on some threshold. Like if the inputs meet a certain threshold, one output would be produced. If they fail to do so, a different output would be produced. The inputs in turn would be assigned weights, which would factor into the output the perceptron would generate. So when we're talking weights, I mean W-E-I-G-H-T-S, as in like how heavy something is, or in this case, how much impact that thing has. So we're talking about how much impact one input has relative to other inputs. Let me use a really mundane human example to kind of explain what this means. Let's say that your friend asks you to go see a movie with them and it's going to be playing tonight at 9 p.m. But you've had a really busy day and you might not be able to even eat dinner until around 9 p.m. And if you go see this movie, it might mean having to skip dinner or to try and eat something really fast and unhealthy before you go to the movie. What's more, you got a really big day tomorrow and you feel like you really need to be well rested for it. However, at the same time, you haven't seen this friend in ages and you really like this person and you've wanted to hang with them for a really long time. Plus, the movie they're suggesting is one you've really wanted to see and you haven't gone yet. Well, you would likely assign, at least unconsciously, weights to each of these factors before you make your decision. You know, if getting some dinner without having to rush and also to be really well rested for tomorrow are really important to you, you'll probably reluctantly decline the offer. But if you really crave some time with your friend and you really want to see that movie before all the spoilers come out on Facebook or whatever, 
Maybe you'll say yes. Your decision depends upon the weights you assign those factors, those inputs, even if you don't consciously think about it that way. Well, the perceptron system worked in a similar way. It produced outputs by taking the inputs into consideration, including each input's weight. Moreover, the more you submitted inputs, the more the system would quote-unquote learn how to weight each of those inputs, all with the goal of bringing the actual output that the process or, you know, generates closer to the one you want it to generate. Okay, I just said a lot there. We've got some more to get through. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, before the break, we were talking about inputs and weights and the idea of getting an output that is close to what you want the system to do. Uh, that's not a guarantee, right? The system could generate an output that's quote unquote wrong, you know, depending on whatever task you've set this machine learning system to, to learn. And that gets a bit conceptual. So let's talk about a simple example that I love to use. If you've been listening to Tech Stuff for a while, you've heard this before. And that's talking about pictures of cats because cats ruled the Internet. I don't know if they still do. They won't talk to me. So just knock things off shelves. Anyway, if your goal is to teach a computer system to differentiate photos that include a cat from photos that do not include a cat, 
Well, you would need to train the system. And part of that includes feeding the system a whole bunch of photographs. Some of those would have cats in them. Some would not. And chances are the system would misidentify photos, maybe a significant number of those photos. You would probably have false positives where the system thinks there's a cat there and there's not, and false negatives where it doesn't think there's a cat there, but there is. At that point, your goal is to try and teach the system to close the gap between the actual results it produces and what you want it to produce. In some systems, that means you might have to go in manually to adjust the input weights to increase the weight of one input versus another in an effort to cut down on mistakes. So the perceptron was interesting, but it was very limited in complexity. It was essentially a single layer where you'd feed a bunch of inputs in and you would get an output. So it was suitable for a subset of computational challenges, but anything beyond that was well beyond its own reach as a single layer network. By the late 1950s, other researchers had created new neural networks that were multi-layered. So a node or neuron didn't just accept inputs. It would generate outputs that then would become inputs for another layer down. So instead of just having one layer of nodes, you would have multiple layers of nodes. Typically, you would have one at the, you know, quote unquote, top of the network and you would have outputs at the bottom, and the ones in between would be often referred to as hidden layers, and who knows how many there would be. So anyway, you would feed data to the system. The initial nodes would generate information as outputs. That would become inputs for the next layer down, which would then continue the process and so on and so forth until you get to the output. So now you had artificial neural networks that could tackle more complex challenges, and you would have multiple steps in the process. Didn't necessarily mean they were automatically better than the perceptron was, just that they were able to tackle more complicated tasks. What followed is something that will probably sound really familiar to you if you ever follow technology or fads. The hype around machine learning and artificial intelligence, you know, keep in mind, this is like the 1960s, it grew beyond the technology's actual capabilities at that time. People started to project what this technology would be able to do, and they did so thinking it was going to be in a very short turnaround. Like we're right on the very precipice of a monstrous breakthrough that will bring the science fiction future into the present. So when it was realized that we weren't at that, like that's not how progress typically works. It's usually much more gradual and humble than that. Well, then enthusiasm around AI began to take a hit. And as I mentioned already, a big part of AI research really comes down to funding. And it gets really challenging to secure funding when public opinion dims on a technology. We've seen this happen lots of times, right? Like 3D television was a fad that was pushed. Now, granted, that one, you could argue, was more of an example of manufacturing companies that make televisions trying to push a technology on consumers, and the consumers just weren't interested. You could argue that was the case there. But virtual reality in the 1990s definitely followed this pathway. There was this excitement around virtual reality. Then that excitement faded to almost nothing when people realized that the actual state of the art of the technology was far below where they expected it to be. And suddenly people who were working in VR couldn't get funding for their work. And they kind of had to scrounge around in order to keep the development going at all. And then eventually we would see that come back around again. Uh, you could argue that NFTs recently went through this too, where the hype went well beyond what NFTs could actually do. Uh, I've been really down on NFTs in general. I do think that there are potential legitimate uses for NFTs, but I think the early examples were frivolous and almost solely centered around speculation, as in like financial speculation. And as a result, there was nothing for it to do other than to create a bubble that would ultimately burst, which is what happened. And maybe NFTs will recover from that and become something that's more fundamentally useful in the Internet in the future or in digital commerce in the future. 
but it's going to have to get over the the catastrophe that happened when the rug was pulled out from underneath NFTs. And uh, uh, that was all pre- you know predictable and preventable. But like I've, I've said before, like I've, I've lifted the joke from Peter Cook, we've learned from our mistakes. We can repeat them almost exactly. Anyway, this same sort of hype cycle activity happened with neural networks and machine learning in the 1960s. Then enter Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert of MIT's AI lab. They were leading that lab at the time. In 1969, they co-authored a book titled Perceptrons. They were actually critical of that artificial neural network approach to AI and machine learning. Uh, They were concerned that the limitations of the technology meant that you would need an unrealistically huge system of artificial neurons, perhaps then using that system to compute an infinite number of variations of the same process or task if you wanted to train the weights so that they were of the uh, optimal value. So in other words, they thought it's it's too impractical and it's going to take too much compute time and you're never going to achieve the result you want. You're never going to get to that most perfect system. And they believed it just had fundamental inescapable flaws. They had different systems in mind. Now, Minsky and Seppert tried to push their systems forward, and I could do a full episode about them, too. Uh, And their ideas were not bad. They were different. There was a different approach. But this also meant that researchers who had been pushing the development of our artificial neural networks felt forced to move on to different projects because financial support for anything connected to the concept of neural networks effectively disappeared, right? Like funding just dropped for that because here you had these experts in computer science saying, yeah, this approach, while interesting, has already hit an insurmountable obstacle and it's not going to go any further. It's gone as far as it can go. And uh, so a lot of computer scientists blamed Minsky and Sappert for essentially demolishing funding for neural networks for more than a decade. And in fact, this would become an era that retrospectively computer scientists would reference as the AI winter. Got all Game of Thrones up in here. Now, in 1982, There was a hint of spring thawing out that AI winter. Researchers in Japan were starting to resurrect uh, work on neural network projects. And meanwhile, a scientist named John Hopfield submitted a research paper to the National Academy of Sciences that brought neural networks back into discussion here in the United States. And because Japan was actively investing in developing that technology, Institutions in the United States began to open up the purse strings a bit because there was a concern that if there were something to this artificial neural network concept, if, in fact, those obstacles weren't insurmountable, as Minsky and Seppert had suggested, the U.S. could potentially fall behind another country because it would fail to fund its development. So in a desire not to have Japan take the ball and run with it. The United States began to invest again in artificial neural network research and development. In the mid-1980s, computer scientists essentially rediscovered the usefulness of a process called backpropagation. And I've already talked about nodes and weights and stuff, but this is going to require a little bit more explanation to understand what backpropagation is all about. So let's kind of try to visualize a neural network. So you've got your input nodes. Just think of a bunch of circles. If you were drawing it from top to bottom, this would be your top layer. This is like the funnels where you're going to feed data into the system. Now, you've got a whole bunch of these at the top, and they can accept the data that you're feeding in. They process that data, and then based upon you know some operation, they will then send an output to a node one layer down. So there's lots of other nodes in the layers below, or maybe not as many as you have initial layers. You might actually have fewer and the layers above will send to, you know, data to a specific node, depending upon what the, the outcome is, whatever the output is. So these nodes accept the input. These inputs have a bias and a weight to them. And this is one of the hidden layers. They will then create an output and send that on to 
nodes another layer down. So this goes on until you get to your output layer, where you get your final result. And then you can determine whether or not the final result matches what you were hoping for. So did your system properly identify which photos do and don't have cats in them? Now, as I mentioned earlier, you typically get results that aren't perfect, but we want to train the system to improve with every test. Backpropagation is one way to do this. So with backpropagation, you actually start with the final output. You've already done a test run, right? And you've got your output. And maybe your, your test has five possible final outcomes, but only one of those is the outcome you actually want. Okay, we'll say it's outcome number one. We're saying, I want the system to more often than not come to the conclusion that it's outcome number one. But you run your test. It's got, you know, a thousand uh, 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 little tasks in it. And you run your test. You find out that it only arrives at outcome number one 5% of the time, which is actually worse than random chance, right? It should be 20% for random chance, but it's only getting there 5% of the time. Something is going really wrong with your system for it to mistakenly go to one of the other options and very rarely go to the correct one. So let's say you also notice that outcome number three, it goes to that one 40% of the time. So it's making this mistake 40% of the time and only getting it right 5% of the time. So things are seriously out of whack. You need to find which connections, which would involve the biases and the weights, uh, that are within your system that are leading it to mistakenly arrive at the wrong outcome so frequently. You want to reduce those factors, and simultaneously you need to boost the ones that lead the system to arrive at outcome number one, because that's the answer you actually want the system to get to. All right, we, I've been droning on for a bit. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, I'll finish up explaining this, and then we'll move on to catastrophic forgetting. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, so we were talking about how you are looking at a system that is coming to the wrong conclusion uh, 95% of the time. It is a broken system. You have to then figure out what factors are causing this to happen. And they are numerous, right? They extend all the way up to the very top of your neural network, the other end where the input comes in. But you can't just change everything all at once. You got to figure this out systematically. And that's what backpropagation is really all about. It detects which links one layer up from the output have the greatest impact on the outcome, right? Changing everything would be tedious. It would be impractical. You might even make things worse. Some of these neural networks are confoundingly complicated, so it's not really a, a feasible solution. So instead, you look at the connections that are having the biggest impact on your outcome. So you want things where if you make a small change in either the bias or the weight, or maybe both, you'll see a larger end effect on the outcome. All the connections are arguably important, but some are more important than others. Backpropagation works backwards from the result toward the other end of the network to tweak those connections. It boosts ones that lead to the correct or desired response, and it reduces the values of those that lead to incorrect or undesired responses. If we were to think of this like the classic example in chaos theory, this could potentially involve us studying a hurricane as it hits land and tracing its history back as it moved through the ocean. And we would eventually arrive at the point where it was a tropical storm. And then we would go further back and see the factors that led to the creation of that storm. And maybe if we tracked it all the way back, we would even find that one of a billion factors that made the storm was, in fact, a butterfly was flapping its wings on the other side of the world and that contributed to it. Maybe we find out that butterfly flapping its wings had an impact, but it was negligible. And that if the butterfly hadn't flapped its wings, the hurricane still would have happened. That would be an example of, well, we don't bother adjusting the weight of the, of the impact of that butterfly flapping its wings because it doesn't matter for the end result. But what if we were to discover that that butterfly flapping its wings is the only reason the hurricane happened <laughs> that that or or at least was the primary reason that all the other factors pale in comparison? Well, then we'd want to make sure we boost the weight of that input because clearly that butterfly is fundamental for hurricanes. Uh, I think hurricanes are really dangerous and I would ask butterflies to kind of chill. All right. Let's, I mean, I don't want butterflies to go away. Just, you know, maybe stop flapping so much. Anyway, the formula for backpropagation gets into some calculus that is well beyond my knowledge and skill. So rather than attempt to stumble my way through an explanation that I don't actually understand, I think it's best to leave the concept at the high level that I have described right now. So just know that it gets way more granular than what I've talked about. But essentially... You're looking at those factors that led to the ultimate decision and saying, which ones of these had the greatest impact and how can I tweak them so that I can shape the outcome to one I wanted? If we were thinking about that example I gave about whether or not you go to the movies, maybe in, you know, present day you starts thinking about past experiences where you made a decision to go out when you had a big day than the following day and how that impacted you, perhaps negatively. Maybe you're like, man, I should have gotten a promotion by now. And then you think, well, I do go to the movies an awful lot. 
uh, you might say, uh, I need to adjust some of the factors that affect my decision making process and perhaps prioritize my career. Or if you've decided that late stage capitalism is a uh, terrible evil and that you're going to try and live a hedonistic lifestyle of a wandering soul, maybe you say, I'm going to go and see my movie with my friend. And yeah, that's just how it is, because that's the most important thing to me. You only go around this crazy world once, after all. I'm not telling you which way to go. I'm, I'm still finding my own way. But yeah, backpropagation would be how you would go back and say, all right, well, because I don't like the outcome that happened, I need to change the way these factors weigh in on the decision-making process that goes through the whole system. Now, the advancements in the science of neural networks proved that the technology no longer operated under the constraints that concerned Minsky and support in the late 60s. So once again, funding found its way to neural network research and development projects. Now let's finally talk about forgetting and what makes it catastrophic. So you could, in theory, develop an artificial neural network and have a library of training data and the only thing you ever do with this network is you feed that same set of training data to that same neural network over and over in an effort to get performance as close to perfect as you possibly can. Just, you know, it's kind of like if you have a car and you're constantly tweaking it so it will perform better. And maybe you change one thing and it boosts performance in one area, but it kind of negatively impacts performance in another area. So then you got to tweak something else. You could be doing that with an artificial neural network forever and just be using the same set of training data. And all you're trying to do is make a system that could handle that training data better than any other system in the world. And that would be interesting, but it would be useless from a practical standpoint. I mean, you could say like, hey, you want to see my machine that can sort through only this collection of photographs and pick out the ones that have cats in them and the ones that don't? pretty, pretty darn effectively, but not perfectly, it's not really an interesting value proposition, right? So more likely, you are eventually going to start feeding lots of different kinds of data to this neural network. And, you know, yeah, you train the network on certain data sets, but your goal is to feed new sets of data, data that the system has never encountered before, and rely on the system's ability to process this information correctly to get the result you want. And we might even be talking about stuff the human beings can't easily do, right? But see, the training data is going to mean that the network will start to create and reinforce certain pathways. And those pathways will, over time, get stronger and stronger, just as we said at the beginning of this episode. But new data is going to necessitate new pathways. Sometimes, when the system begins to form these new pathways, it forgets the old pathways. So it's possible for a neural network to actually get worse at the task it had previously been trained to do with the actual training material. Uh, in fact, in a true catastrophe, the system might forget the objective and doesn't recognize what the desired outcome is meant to be, so the results can appear random and meaningless. It's as if the system has developed some form of amnesia. So this is prevalent, most prevalent anyway, in systems that rely on unguided learning. With guided learning, you have engineers who are carefully selecting the data that gets fed into a system. An unguided system would collect raw data from wherever and attempt to deliver desired results. And that those are the kinds of, of neural networks that are more prone to catastrophic forgetting. But as I said, Machine learning systems tackle new data, maybe even new tasks, and that, then you get the risk of the system forgetting stuff. So I jokingly say it's kind of like when I learn something new, it has to push out something old. Like, you know, my friend's phone number or something. Suddenly I can no longer remember it because I learned some new interesting fact. As if I have met my capacity for being able to know things. So learning anything new necessitates having to forget something I used to know. Like Gautier, because now Gautier is just somebody that I used to know. But wait, there's more. Just as a system can experience catastrophic forgetting, it can also experience catastrophic remembering. This is when a system mistakenly believes it is doing one process, a task it had previously been trained to do, 
rather than the one it's actually trying to do. So let's say we've got an artificial neural network and originally we taught it to recognize the photos that have cats in them versus the ones that don't. But now we have retrained the same artificial neural network to try and recognize handwritten text. Except when we feed handwritten text to the system, suddenly the system believes it's trying to determine where the cats are. This is something that can happen with machine learning systems too, and you still get bad results out of it. So this is a real problem. Now, these are not insurmountable problems. There are some solutions that are actually intuitive. For example, any gamer out there knows that it's best to save your game just before you head into a big boss battle, just in case things don't go the way you planned. Well, with artificial neural networks, it's maybe not a bad idea to make a copy of a network before you retrain it to do something new. Then you still have the backup if things do go pear-shaped. There are other approaches to decreasing the risk of catastrophic forgetting or catastrophic remembering. An article in Applied Mathematics titled Overcoming Catastrophic Forgetting in Neural Networks describes a system in which the researchers purposefully slowed down the network's ability to change the weights involved in important tasks from previous uh, uh, training cycles. So this makes teaching the system to do new tasks a little more challenging because it's protecting these weights. It's, it's preventing the system's ability to be completely plastic, which means the system has to work around these constraints and still learn how to do the new task. But in the process, it means it doesn't forget how to do the previous tasks. This article is interesting because the tasks the researchers actually used, the purposes of training, like what were they teaching the artificial neural network to do? Well, they were teaching it how to play Atari 2600 games. So they would start with one game and train the system on how to play the game. Then they would give the system a new game with different, you know, game mechanics. And the system would have to learn how to play this new game. But they wanted to see if it could still remember how to play the original game. That was kind of the, the system they were working on. They were tweaking things so that the machine learning net, artificial neural network as a whole could learn how to play multiple Atari 2600 games without forgetting how to do the previous ones. This is a non-trivial task. I mean, it takes a lot of work to see exactly how to preserve things so that you're not slowing down the learning process too much, but you're also not inviting the possibility of catastrophic forgetting. Now, that's just one example of how researchers are looking to mitigate the problem of catastrophic forgetting and catastrophic remembering. There are other methods as well. And maybe I'll do another episode where I'll go into more detail on some of those. They do get pretty complicated. And in fact, uh, eventually, really not even eventually, pretty early on, I hit my limit for a, a, as far as I can understand the actual mechanics of the system. So rather than, you know, try and, and punch above my weight, I think it's best to kind of be a little more general. But just to have that understanding, to kind of get a better appreciation of some of the challenges relating to artificial intelligence in general and machine learning in particular. Uh, and again, like this machine learning issue, it's really a bigger problem with more sophisticated systems that are meant to do unsupervised and unguided learning. Right. Those are the ones that are going to be more prone to these issues. If we're talking about supervised and guided learning where engineers are being very careful with the data being fed to a system, it's less likely to happen. But the whole promise, or, or at least the, you know, not the promise of the technology itself, but the promise of the people who are funding it, is that this technology is going to reach a point where it's able to learn on its own and be able to do things better than people can do to free us up to doing, you know, stuff we want to do instead of stuff we have to do. That's like the science fiction dream version of, of AI. As we all know, getting there is much more painful. It's not like a simple process of, hey, we've made everything easy to do now and you don't have to work all day. You can enjoy your life and pursue your dreams and and develop your hobbies and your interests and you can have fulfillment and somehow money isn't important anymore. Like that seems to be the Star Trek version of the future that people want it to go in. But as we have seen 
the process of getting there is way more painful as you know people face a reality of potentially being out of work because of AI or maybe being paid way less to do work because the AI is doing most of it. These are not, that's not Star Trek future. <laughs> that's getting like into Blade Runner future. So, well, we don't want that one, by the way. Um, the tears in the rain speech is fantastic, but you do not want to live in the Blade Runner world. Trust me. You might not want to live in the Star Trek world either because those outfits don't look that comfortable. Anyway, that's my little discussion about AI, machine learning, and catastrophic forgetting and catastrophic remembering. Again, this is just one of the challenges associated with AI and machine learning. I don't mean to suggest it's the one and only or even that it's the most important one, but it is one that I had not really heard of until I listened to that Skeptic's Guide to the Universe episode over the weekend. And it was really interesting to dive into the the material and read up about it and to get a better understanding of what it means and how it works. Uh, and as I said, we'll we'll probably revisit this topic in the future, especially since AI is such a big deal these days. Okay, but that's it for this episode of Tech Stuff. I hope you are all well, and I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.